Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Hi, and welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Amy Middleton. Hey, welcome to Women on the Line. I'm Amy Middleton. This week is part two of my exploration into how place and environment can impact uh, the stories we tell and the way we tell them. This week I chat with two women whose art is linked with place, land and environment. Rebecca Giggs is a Sydney-based author who writes about ecology and environment, and Megan Cope is a Quandam Mooka woman from North Stradbroke Island whose visual art is inextricably linked with land and place. And if you missed part one of this series, in which I chatted with Sophie Allen, co-founder of Chart Collective, which is a, a publishing collective focused on art that reflects place and space, you can jump onto 3cr.org.au slash podcasts and download part one from there. Sydney-based author Rebecca Giggs writes about ecology and environmental imagination, animals, landscape, politics and memory. Her essays and reviews have appeared in publications such as Best Australian Science Writing 2014, Griffith Review, Aeon Magazine, Mianjin, Overland and the Sydney Review of Books, among others. Rebecca's short fiction has been widely published and anthologised in collections such as Best Australian Stories 2011, and The Best of the Lifted Brow. Originally from Western Australia, Rebecca holds a PhD in Fictocriticism and Ecological Philosophy. She's also a member of faculty in the English Department at Macquarie University. Thanks so much for joining us, Rebecca. Hi, Amy. Thanks very much for having me. No problem. Um, To start off with, uh, could you just talk a bit about how important place and environment is to you personally? I guess... You know, personally, politically, socially, place and environment have become the central optics through which I create my artistic work as a a writer. Um, I I grew up on the west coast of Australia having a real saltwater childhood, a real Tim Winton-style childhood. And uh, I date my awareness of, um, or sort of growing environmental awareness, to about 2004 when the Boxing Day tsunami happened. Um, so I'd, I'd sort of had this um, real beach childhood. Mm. And then, at, at a, you know, at a point where the beach was really this space of romance and, you know, adolescence and yeah. um, uh, vigorousness. And so I'd never really thought critically about it until the tsunami happened and I was in you know, in Perth with my family, just seeing these awful scenes on the TV of Aceh and Sri Lanka and southern India and the destruction happening there. And and suddenly it seemed like the beach was this really contingent space, this space where real violence could take place. And um, uh, 
yeah, so I, I, that was the point at which I started writing about the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it became, you know, I guess, I guess, although the ocean isn't inherently a place that you can inhabit. But it's um, your surroundings, so, certainly. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it became kind of central to my, to my art. But, um, of course, along with that came a sort of increasing political awareness of what we're doing to the environment and a sort of agenda there, I suppose, to get involved. So, yeah, it's become incredibly important to me. And on a more external level, is would you say that place um, has influenced some of your favourite art or art that has really moved you um, in your practice? Yeah, certainly. I mean, my favourite writers are writers who are sort of iteratively obsessed with place. Mm. Um, in Australia, I'm a big fan of, of Ross Gibson and um, uh, I suppose Nicholas Rothwell and Paul Carter. Um, but yeah, and my sort of literary lodestar and my 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 favourite writer is Rebecca Solnit from um, mm. from San Francisco, and she's very interested in the way that. Um, memory and landscape and um, culture, you know, intermeshes in place. Mm. Um, yeah, so those are the sorts of art forms. I think, you know, visual art has also been really com- um, is is a field that I'm I'm very interested in as well. Um, and yeah, I'd be hard pressed to name artists that have sort of been influential, but um, I do look at and think a lot about uh, the representation of Australia in visual art, particularly. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about this concept in particular um, relevance to Australia um, because we are so historically um, tied up in uh, ideas of land and environment. Um, And is that something that you teach um, in your university involvement? A little bit, yeah. Um, I teach a unit in environmental non-fiction and we certainly contemplate some of those themes in that class. Um, And in a particularly Australian context as well? Yes, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we sort of have an idea that what the popular apprehension in Australia is that Australian writers do write about place um, obsessively and in many cases create environments that they return to over multiple texts. So if if you think of someone like Tim Winton, the landscape that he's made, mm. is, um, you'd be hard-pressed to find it now outside in the world. It exists yeah. in his books in a really vivid way. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think I think there's an American writer called Leslie Silco of the Laguna Pueblo people, and she's written that, um, you know, the, the persistent compulsion to write about landscape might, in fact, be an indicator of a lack of connectedness to it and as a non-indigenous writer I feel that like I feel as though um, an awareness of the unsettling of space and of the meaningfulness of aboriginality and the depth of of those connections is um, always kind of underlying my experience of place and so there's always a sense that you're kind of reaching for some sort of um, you know reservoir of meaning that's underneath a place that you won't be able to access and so you keep writing and you keep writing Mm. um yeah but certainly I mean that history is very live in my thinking I suppose channeling um this connectiveness to environment and to nature and to place Mm. um do you think that 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 uh artistic um connection has the power to influence people's interactions with their surroundings yeah certainly I think that 
historically, you know, people have tried to cultivate the environments that they idealise in literature and in other art forms like film. And, you know, the, the fact that we have huge clouds of starlings over Central Park in New York is the result of uh, a group of people trying to introduce every single bird that was mentioned <laughs> in Shakespeare in the late 19th century to the United States. So, um, and that persists in other interesting ways that people try to create the environments that they've um, learned to love through fiction. Mm. Um, I do think you also have to have some awareness, though, that there are environmental costs to art making and mm. You know, it's uh, you write. You know, certainly in New South Wales, we write with coal, right? Because it's coal-fired power that drives my laptop and, yeah. <laughs> and the, the cloud computing systems that I use. And um, so, I'm always trying to get that kind of awareness into into what I write. Um, I mean, I think that there should be an increasing humility around the fact that the environments we have in our literature are more vivid and sustainable than the environments we have outside our literature. Even in the, the whale books, that, the whale book that I'm working on at the moment, there are species of whale now that are mentioned more often in Moby Dick, in mm. that single book, than there are individuals of that species getting around in the world today. Wow. And that sort of generates this sense of the role of literature can be, um, you know, in, in turning in environments into these fantastical spaces yeah, it can give us inspiration for the preservation of environments, but it can also act as a source of um, vicarious kind of retreat from mm. the damage that we're doing. So I think ethically, yeah, you, I, try, I try to bring that into my work. I try to talk about that because um, it's a problem I think we'll increasingly face. And how to navigate that, I mean... Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's fairly fraught. Do you... Um, is there ways that you... Um, navigate that in your own work apart from sort of raising the discussion or I guess I'm always trying to write environments that are um, while there's some aesthetic beauty to them there's something a little sour there's mm. something a little bit you know the, the fruit salad piece that I had in the chart collective is very much about um, in the longer light series that they ran rather is is the sort of nostalgia piece and that sort of reflection on um, lost, I guess, and, and sort of, you know, the way that familial histories and um, social histories can be bound up in experiences of environment that we can't repeat because we have changed that environment. Um, I'm often working with that sort of loss. Um, but I don't want it to be wholly um, maudlin, right? You don't yeah. want to give the reader an experience that's really... Um, puts them puts them in a foul mood, I suppose. Yeah. So, um, so a bit of optimism to balance it out. Yeah, well, I think enchantment still has a role to play. Yeah, you know, I still I still do find um, environments incredibly enchanting, and I think um, offsets a lot of the you know rigor of modernity and urban living. And you know, I love hiking, I love swimming. Um, it's just that embodied experience of nature. I think I try to focus on that as well. Awesome. Well, it feels like a good time to ask you to um, read from your piece, Australian Fruit Salad, which is from, as you mentioned, the Longer Light series put out by a chart collective. The wonderful people at Chart Collective. Aren't They're they really wonderful? Fantastic stuff. They are. 
Um, and uh, definitely inciting more interest um, in exploring the connections between place and art. Um, so I'll hand over to you, Rebecca Giggs, to read um, your piece, Australian Fruit Salad. Thanks, Amy. Australian Fruit Salad. For the two weeks over the Christmas break, I returned to my parents' home in Perth. Each day we peel and dice a large basin of fruit salad. Baby nephews gurgling on the living room tiles, cousins sprawled asleep on the sofas. Someone will be singing in the shower while my brother-in-law and my father take apart a bike on the veranda. A tiny knife makes exacting work. Apples. The red ones we still avoid out of a conviction imprinted early by Disney that they're poisonous or enchanting. See Snow White. A crisp memory. I lost my first tooth into an apple, blood unseen upon my chin. More fascinated than alarmed by the bone in the fruit, I believe the apple had grown its own teeth. Now each year the apples are heavier, glossier and more pungent and their nutritional value diminishes. An apple today has one-third the iron of an apple grown in 1950 and its vitamin A has declined precipitously too. Yet these new apples seem more powerfully apple more complete in their inhabitation of the defining qualities of apples. Scent, crunch, shine. I'm talking here about the ones you have to eat two-handed, plucked from behind a misting veil in the supermarket, those snow-white apples. In 2014, an apple grower in southern Tasmania picked an apple that was half red and half green, as if it had been dipped in paint. She'd planted a hybrid strain for the commercial market, but this individual fruit had sorted out its genes and poured its ancestor apples into the two separate sides of itself. Apple historians and pomologists will tell you this is highly unusual. Though genetic instability in cropping fruit means there's always a push on the part of the apples to revert to older varietals. The language for these heirloom species is as diverse as their colour range. Oblate, shy bearers and golden keepers with water cores offer a brisk subacid or vinous flavour. When apple tastes change and apples go extinct, the biodiversity of our adjectives wanes too. Oranges. That morning a storm surge drew oranges upstream. Wandering foam turned auburn in a gyre of oranges. Insects inched clockwork, an eddy in the air. The entire surface of the river was blanketed in fruit. We picked our way along the banks. Oranges flowing in the deep tea-coloured water. Oranges snagged in tree roots, trundled in mud. Our dismay to discover they were bitter oranges and salty. Afloat, twitching, their undersides shredded by finger-length yabbies, fish and stonefly nymphs, until there were only hemispheres of citrus peel and hollow globes burrowed in the dark eucalyptus riverbed. We asked around. Consensus credited the high dollar, an influx of condensed juice, Brazilian Valencias and the anti-sugar lobby meant that farmers were dumping their oranges into the sea that season. But the fruit kept coming back, washing up with all the jolting punctuality of an omen. 
Thanks so much for that, Rebecca. And if uh, listeners are curious to read a bit more of your work, where can they find more? I have a long essay that's in the Griffith Review right now that was released only a couple of days ago. And you can find out more on my website, which is www.rebeccagiggs.com. Rebecca Giggs there, reading her piece Australian Fruit Salad from uh, Chart Collective's recent anthology, The Longer Light Years. Um, and you can find out more at chartcollective.org. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was... Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> Megan Cope is a Kondamooka woman from North Stradbroke Island in Queensland. Her work has been presented in Australia and abroad, including the Lie of the Land New Australian Landscapes exhibition in Washington, D.C. in 2012. In 2013, Megan was commissioned to create a major site-specific work for the My Country I Still Call Australia Home exhibit in the Gallery of Modern Art Brisbane and Next Wave Festival in Melbourne. She's also a member of the Brisbane-based Aboriginal art collective Proper Now. Thanks for joining us on Women on the Line, Megan. Thanks for having me. No worries. So to begin, um, if you could just tell us a bit about your background and the importance of place and environment to you personally. Okay, uh, so I was born in Brisbane and uh, raised by my father, who's Aboriginal, and we pretty much travelled um, a lot up until I was about five um, we sort of we you know lived in the back of a panel van basically dad just drove and um, would find work along the way and we'd often camp in small mining towns or regional places and so I feel like I have a very intimate relationship with the Australian landscape in that sense that you know my lounge room growing up well at least up until I was five was the Australian bush um, and then we moved to Tasmania um, and still spent a lot of time outdoors. Um, so I've travelled a lot, which kind of helps, um, you know, connect with the Australian landscape. And what about urban environments? Well, yeah, um, I moved to the suburbs when I was 13 in Tasmania and... Uh, yeah, that was just uh, an invitation to be a rat bag, I think. That was just... <laughs> well, that's funny. The yeah, way, it's kind of interesting. The way your surroundings can impact your behaviour. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I've lived, you know, basically in the urban environment ever since. So how have these places and environments sort of surfaced in your work and influenced your art particularly? Uh, well, as a painter... Um, you know, I became very interested in concepts of ownership, like much later on, perhaps, you know, after university and when I was teaching at the university in Brisbane, um, a, a subject called Indigenous Art Practices and Protocols. And basically, you know, um, this was a core subject that um, talked about Aboriginal art, but often we were talking about more complex social problems and um, perceptions and ideologies um, within and, and those sort of, you know, differences, um, ideological differences, um, particularly like when it comes to concepts of ownership of land. And um, 
for me, growing up the way I did, um, even though I travelled across many Aboriginal countries, I grew up knowing that I was travelling across other mm. Aboriginal countries and meeting people and hearing their stories and all of that kind of stuff. And that was really, you know, absolutely common knowledge for me. And then to be in a situation where, you know, young people who I thought, you know, had gone through that radical, you know, transgression through the 80s and 90s, political and social movement that happened with reconciliation, you know, I thought that they would totally be at the same level as me with this understanding. Um, Yeah, when I sort of was confronted by that reality, I started to look at mapping and using that as a premise to challenge ideas of ownership um, of land primarily. And so, yeah, I appropriate military maps and um, research and incorporate Aboriginal place names as a primary focus and also language groups and family groups, clan groups, or some people say tribes, um, yeah, and put them in dominant language, English, well, English version of Aboriginal, um, over the map. So um, can you talk a little bit how about how the size and materials and uh, the way it's put together sort of impacts um, responders emotionally and, and how, how you get across your feelings about land and ownership through the medium? Well, I guess, um, I mean, using a military map of um, the Australian landscape is really interesting for me. Um, I use those maps because of our kind of struggle to recognise Aboriginal resistance, um, first and foremost, um, and also to reference that particular point in time um, between the First World War and the Second World War and Aboriginal people's disposition within the social landscape and Australian landscape as well. Um, you know, I I was looking at parish maps prior that were editioned prior to that series mm-hmm. um, and a lot of those maps were made in the 1800s um, and what was really interesting was that there were a lot of Aboriginal place names um, mm-hmm. in those maps and that made me think about um, Aboriginal people's position within the physical landscape as well and whether th- that had any effect on how that translation of information in the maps um, and then to study the uh, military maps, how a lot, like noticing a difference and, you know, a lot of those place names had disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that really interesting and, um, yeah, and sort of, power of mapping and the power of war and all of those sort of narratives you know I just um yeah I was really struck by by that and yeah really keen to overlay Aboriginal information and include an Aboriginal narrative within that space. And on a broader level I guess this is a concept that isn't far from a lot of Aboriginal art um, can you talk a bit more broadly about how these concepts of ownership and also, um, I guess, any sort of relationship to environment and surroundings tends to surface in Aboriginal art? Oh, well, it's paramount to our identity and our existence and it's been paramount to our survival, um, you know, always. So, yeah, I mean, it's very, very important. Our 
you know, wherever you're from, wherever your country is, you know, your country sings to you. You have a responsibility to look after it. You have a responsibility to maintain the stories that are essentially mapping and documenting patterns in nature and cycles, um, seasonal cycles with, you know, birds, fish. And I think that's, yeah, it's absolutely, you know, every, every Aboriginal community has that. It's part of our culture. Yeah. And it comes through in law. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, that's right. That's why a lot of Aboriginal people do reference that because it's, yeah, it's, it's in your DNA almost. If there's any, if there's to be any kind of cohesion, um, then that's the best. That's that's sort of the best place to start, really, because we've been sharing our land now with non-Aboriginal people for a long time, and it is really important for all of our survival here to know that and share that, and sort of yeah, take that responsibility on. I think yeah. And you think art's a good influencer in that manner. Yeah, art's a great way to, um, yeah, speak about these things, um, you know, in in alternative ways and captivate people's imaginations and, you know, evoke their emotions and... I guess the the thing about art is that it's sometimes tricky to find the right audience. I think that um, when you're really committed to your ideas and your philosophy and your practice, um, and you work really hard, um, and you're sort of, you know, you are aware of, you know, things that are really important in society. I think, um, you know, artists do well that focus on those things. Um, I think that that is the artist's job, in fact, you know, to remind people of um, what's, what's going on and, you know talk about the things that we perhaps can't see and present that in ways that we can see it. So can you talk a bit about how um, place and environment has perhaps influenced some of the works that you've consumed over your life? Yeah. I, well, look, I just, I'm a real av- um, avid advocator for any contemporary Indigenous art and cultural production. I think that um, Australia has, you know within that community are making some of the most important artwork of our time. Um, yeah, because they are, you know, talking about climate change and social politics and just, um, yeah, constantly agitating and um, challenging people's norms. They're not interested in comfortable commissions by major institutions. They're interested in making work that's going to challenge people's ideas of Australia moreover I mean they're talking about their identities and all that kind of stuff but it's it's also applies to all Australians in many ways thanks once again to our guests Rebecca Giggs and Megan Cope for coming on to this week's edition of Women on the Line and once again if you missed part one of this two-part series hop on to 3cr.org.au slash podcasts to download uh, both episodes Thanks for joining me for another edition of Women on the Line. See you next time. Women on the Line is Community Radio's national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women at 3CR Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. Women on the Line can be downloaded from our website, womenontheline.org.au, or download the podcast at 3cr.org.au slash podcast. I'm Amy Middleton. Tune in next time for another edition of Women on the Line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.